Uh, Mark, I told you last night we was gonna, I was going to cover this in a synopsis view, and I'm going to wait on that. I decided okay. to do something else. But we are going to. Uh, the next uh, two or three studies, it'll probably take three that we have. I'd like to go through this book with you, those of you especially with a, in, that are in college. Uh, Evolution and Faith by J.D. Thomas. Uh, Thomas is from Abilene Christian University. He's over the biology department there. And of the books that I've read on this line, it's one of the best. And another good thing about it is that it's, it's written in an easy to understand way. But he does a real good job of uh, blending together what is being said by atheistic scientists and, uh, and then also Christian scientists and of dealing with uh, not only the mistakes of atheistic scientists but also showing how that uh, some of the, the biases of theologians is a, is a big part of the problem here. Uh, the book overall, if you want to get it, uh, you know, I'd recommend it. You won't need it, uh, but I mean, I'm saying if you'd like to get it and make notes in it, it's the type of information I think that is good to have in your mind, especially if you're talking to somebody as you're going to be in the future with this kind of background. Mark has read the book already, I believe, and I think he would uh, agree that it, you know it's an exceptionally good, exceptionally good book and and well written. Uh, to show you how timely the material is, this is the U.S. News and World Report for uh, December. Let me see, December 23rd, and notice the lead article is on the creation and uh, religion search for a common ground with science. Actually, this article was better than I expected. Normally, the, uh, the secular magazines, if they have anything at all uh, from a religious person, it's always from a, a liberal who really does not believe in the inspiration of the Bible himself. Uh, I thought this was a pretty balanced approach, not completely balanced, but more balanced than you normally find. But where the article was good, it shows you some of the questions that people have on their mind I mean, good, honest questions, and some of the areas that um, that Christians need to be able to deal with. And he also does a good job of showing that uh, uh, that down through the years, uh, some of the conflict between science and religion has been through uh, theology that was inaccurate in times when theologians have got into the scientific realm and tried to make dogmatic judgments that in the final analysis just simply did not stack up with the facts themselves. But the article is very good. And then the book here. So we'll, I'll use this and take about three times to go through this book, beginning with the next time that we get together. What I'd like to, for us to study tonight is the subject of discipleship. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Luke 14 to start. We're going to look at a number of passages. Last night, uh, in fact, I was going to start with this book tonight. And then after watching something last night, uh, I changed my mind. Uh, did any of you by any chance see uh, the uh, prime time last night, the, one of the magazine-type news programs? Nobody saw it? You did, Mark, did you know, did you know to see the part then on, uh, with the Nazism and it's rising again in Germany and also the Ku Klux Klan and the Nazis in this country? What they pointed out is that the not Nazi uh, political persuasion that, of course, uh, was what uh, motivated Germany in World War II is making a comeback in Germany. 
And already that not only are there thousands of people that are members of the Nazi organization there, but it's said that in reality about 40% of the population of Germany, although they were not in that category, but about 40% were sympathetic uh, to what was being said. And they are espousing Adolf Hitler as the greatest person who ever lived, the same things of the superiority of uh, one race over another, uh, um, little video games dealing with the gassing of Jews and things of that nature. The interesting thing was that uh, much of the material that they're uh, getting to distribute and to fight for the minds of the young over there are not coming from Germany because it's actually against the law in Germany to even give the Nazi salute or to publish that material and to circulate it. But it's not against the law in the United States. And so people that are in the Nazi organization here in the United States are producing pieces of literature by the thousands and thousands and sending it into Germany uh, to be distributed. And there is a viable Nazi party here in the United States. And it also dealt with the fact that the Ku Klux Klan and, and, the, and the Nazi organization in this country and also in Germany are working together. Again, what, what it impressed on my mind was that that in reality, the, the problem in World War II never was Hitler. Uh, one man does not come to power, whether it's uh, Saddam Hussein or a Hitler or a Stalin, unless he represents the thinking of a certain amount of people. He just can't do it. There's no way that one person just walks up and, uh, and just it takes over unless there's people that agree with him. And what it shows that the real problem was a philosophy of life. And that philosophy of life is still there. Germany is one of the most atheistic countries on the face of the earth. In fact, uh, Western Europe is very atheistic. Uh, for example, I was reading a report by a missionary, Floyd Williamson, uh, who's a missionary from the, in the Churches of Christ uh, in Sweden. And he pointed out there that 20% uh, of the population was atheist. Uh, that compares to about 5% in this country. 30% would classify themselves as agnostic. 30% had about some religious uh, feeling. And anyway, by the time he got down to it, only 10% of the population make any profession whatsoever uh, to Christianity. Well, in all of Western Europe, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but about 10 to 15% is it, uh, so far as Christianity is concerned. And keep in mind, there was a time a few hundred years back when Christianity was the dominant force uh, in Western Europe. It was literally the dominant force in Western Europe. In fact, there was a time when well over 90% of the population uh, would have claimed to have been Christian. All right, now, in our own country, we have dropped uh, from the turn of the century uh, to now where the percentage of our population that would be considered conservative Christian, fundamentalist. In other words, by conservative or fundamentalist, I simply mean those who believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, we've dropped from uh, about 41% down to 31% uh, of the population. On the other hand, in third world countries like Africa, uh, at the turn of the century, Christianity uh, was about 2% of the population. Now it's about 10% of the population. In India, uh, in South America, in Mexico, uh, in all your third world countries, Christianity is on the rise. Uh, and on the other hand, in the prosperous, uh, affluent parts of the world, 
Christianity is on the demise. Uh, right now, uh, Russia and the eastern countries of Europe seem to be more open to spiritual information and to the Bible than the more affluent western part of Europe. And so much so that right now we can't get enough Bibles into Russia. And, and the way that Christians in this country respond in the next few years may do more than anything to determine whether you're going to have something like a World War II. Uh, one of the things we found out with Saddam Hussein uh, is that you really don't win wars with armaments. You, you never really win until you change people's thinking. And, and, and if people think a certain way, then all they need is an opportunity and they're going to express uh, whatever's in their mind. The greatest force, in fact, the, the only force in the world uh, that's going to change this in any positive way is Christianity. Now, in our country, we have been almost brainwashed. This is my opinion. You know, you, obviously, you're welcome to differ in any way, but we have been brainwashed, and even those of us as Christians, to believe that capitalism and freedom is some sort of panacea, that if we can just, uh, uh, and democracy, that if we can just spread democracy and an economic system based on capitalism and freedom, that the whole world is, is going to be a better place. But if you're looking at Eastern Europe, you can see that uh, uh, as uh, democracy has come in and as freedom has come in, it hasn't all been good, has it? Uh, if you've noticed that crime, for example, is tremendously up in some of those countries. Remember the statement that Paul made in Galatians, the fifth chapter, in the 13th verse, it said, you have been set free in Christ, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for indulgence of the flesh. Freedom is not necessarily a good thing. You wouldn't want to live in a neighborhood where everybody was 100% free and could just do anything you want. Freedom is great, or not great, depending on the philosophy of life that people believe. And so if you're in a society where people are free, but they believe a philosophy of life based on the scriptures, and specifically I'm speaking on the teaching of Christianity, then you've got the potential for all kinds of great things to happen. And this is what happened in the, in, in the, the historical past of our country. We had freedom, but we didn't have just freedom and democracy. We had freedom in a society where the majority of our population believed the Bible was the inspired word of God and where the majority of the population professed belief in Jesus. And from within that type of framework, democracy and freedom uh, created a, a moral force for good. But freedom in and of itself, or capitalism in and of itself, or democracy in and of itself. In fact, one of the things that we're finding now in our own country, we've got democracy, but we've also got a lot of dishonest politicians, don't we, in office. That uh, What good does it do you uh, if you can... In democracy, you've got freedom to pick your uh, politicians. But if you're choosing between two liars, or you're choosing between moral reprobates, uh, then uh, and if it come, when it comes to even electing judges, if, you're, if you've got moral reprobates to choose from, then obviously just the fact that you're free and you've got democracy does not guarantee you a good society. Now, what I'm trying to say, and I'm going to look, uh, shut up, and, and we'll read and look at the passages, that this attitude that we have as Christians in this country of just sitting back and going to our, our nice buildings and uh, being very comfortable uh, and thinking of church from the standpoint of dressing up and going to service a couple of times a week 
and looking for churches that minister to our needs and all, that we that think that way are a big part of the problem uh, of the world that we're in. The, the world is in darkness, according to the scriptures. And, and the light and the salt of the world is to be Christians. And then the question is, though, how are we going to affect the world? And so I'd like to look at some statements at what Jesus said uh, is involved in discipleship and suggest to you that as we look at these passages, this idea of determining that a person is a faithful Christian because they go to service two times on Sunday and once on Wednesday night and don't knock anybody in the head in between, that is strictly a cultural definition of faithfulness. I don't think you can find anything like that in the scriptures. Uh, that where you where you determine faithfulness just on going to a few appointed services and and being halfway morally morally upright in between, that discipleship here is not only something that is set forth as as good, it's something that's actually demanded and said is the the only way. And I think it's good for us to look at it because everybody here has been blessed with a very good mind. Uh, you're getting your your education. Uh, you guys and ladies are going to go into all different kinds of congregations and, and you're going to, because of your educational background, you're going to have an opportunity to determine how congregations spend their money, uh, whether they spend it on uh, doing evangelism in, in Russia or the third world countries and putting most of their money into missionary type work or whether they spend their money serving themselves and, and doing for themselves and, and having a good time. You're going, to, you're going to determine whether we're more involved in, in church ball leagues or church personal work programs. In, in fact, right now, answer in your own mind, what, what do we have the most of in churches of Christ? Uh, churches with, with teams that participate in ball leagues or churches with good personal work programs and good mission. I mean, you, uh, maybe your contacts are different than, than the experiences that I've got. Okay, flip over to Luke 14. And I'm going to start over here with... Uh, Mark, uh, reading, Luke 14, and beginning with verse uh, 25. All right, Mark, read that all the way down through verse, uh, through verse 30, 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. What? Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he, he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, now we're going to discuss that. But before we do, 
I'd like to flip over to John and look at his comment. Notice it says here that large crowd, when Jesus made this statement, you've got this tremendously large crowd that really thinks they want in on this, that they want a piece of what's going to become Christianity. And he looks at that large crowd and, and makes some very strong statements and observations for them to consider. Okay, over here in John, the sixth chapter. Notice again in verse 2 of the 6th chapter of John, uh, a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs. All right, we see that one of the reasons that Jesus always had a great crowd is not because everybody was really and truly interested in being a disciple, but they were wild by these miraculous signs and they wanted to be healed. And come on over to uh, verse 14 of that same chapter now. And the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, and they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Uh, they were looking for a physical king to reign like David uh, that would have high positions here on this earth. There was going to be prosperity in Israel. Uh, they were going to overthrow Rome. And so they were really thinking that he was the man. But that's not the man that he was, and he knew it, and so he simply got away from them. Okay, they're still following him. And so we come on down to, uh, uh, let's see, verse uh, 25 of, of the 6th chapter. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And this is after Jesus now has, has uh, fed a large group. He said, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but the food that endures for eternal life. All right, his rebuke is, he's just fed 5,000. He's performed all kinds of miracles. And so as long as he is feeding and healing, and they think offering them, uh, he's going to be the great king, and they're going to reign and be supreme here, Man, everybody wanted a piece of the action. And Jesus keeps pulling away from them and, and try, trying to avoid them. And he makes an observation. He says, uh, you're, you're not following me because you saw what he's really saying. You saw what these miraculous signs are pointing to. That's not the reason. You're just concerned about your belly and, and, and getting your fill and, and what I can do for you. Well, then he proceeds to explain to them that that they're going to have to literally partake of him. And of course, he's, he uses figurative language, and, but he's talking about literally partaking of him. And then he comes on down in verse, uh, verse 60 now, verse 60 of chapter 6. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who could accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Okay, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. Then he said to the twelve, you, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? you have the words of eternal life. Now let's turn back to Luke and we'll begin to look at what he's saying there with that large crowd following him. The problem that Jesus had is that on the one hand, 
he used the miracles to identify himself as the Messiah. And he used the healing. And he, of course, he was constantly healing people. And he fed these large crowds. But their expectations of the Messiah were strictly physical. Uh, they were wild by these miracles. The, the idea of being fed like Moses fed the manna in the wilderness, in manna in the wilderness that was a great thing. Uh, the idea of him being a king like David and, and them being set up as a great people, that was all very, very appealing. But then as he began to get it across to them that this wasn't what he was all about, that, that he didn't come to just fill their stomach and, and to be concerned and spend his time with physical things, and he wasn't going to be any physical king, and he, he didn't have any high position for them here on this earth, and that literally they were going to have to deny themselves, give up their life, partake of his words, all the emphasis was going to be on the spiritual and all. When this finally settled in their mind, most of them, uh, John says, turned and left. Uh, they came to the conclusion they didn't want any part of him. And then he turns to the twelve and, and he asks them, all right, now the notice though, he made no compromise. That even though they were turning and going, he laid down what it was, and then he simply even asked the twelve, are you going also? Of course, they stayed, but the point is there was no compromise with the information. Okay, now, look at this in the 14th chapter and the way he ended his discourse in verse 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, uh, this was an idiom used in the culture that Jesus was in when he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, what I'm saying is true. I'm not going to change it. That's the way it is. If you can stomach it, take it. If you've got the type of mind that this is appealing to, then go ahead. But if you don't, I'm not going to change it. I, I don't know. I'd like to should have counted, but I'd like to know how many times Jesus made that statement. Let him that has ears hear. And it was a common idiom of that day. Uh, what I'm saying is there. There's not going to be any compromise with it. It's not going to be changed. And you're going to have to have the. In other words, you're going to have to mold yourself to meet the information and not mold the information uh, to, to meet what you want. Okay, let's look at this in that uh, beginning with the 25th verse. Somebody want to tackle that? Where he says in verse 26, if uh, he turns to that large crowd, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, and then notice that very plain statement, he cannot be my disciple. What's he saying there? He's talking about something he said earlier in Luke. Well, recorded in Luke, talking about dying yourself and your, taking your cross and bearing your burden daily. Okay. Uh, what, what's he mean? What do you think on hating your mother, father, brother, sister, son, or daughter, etc.? If you don't, you can't be his disciple. Love him less. Okay. Who was it that said that? Okay. The, the word hate is not like our, in other words, the Greek word there would mean to esteem uh, less. That uh, it, 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 to hate was to, to look down on in comparison to something else. Uh, the word in the Bible that would be more comparable to the word that we use for hatred would be an abomination. Uh, six things of the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. Uh, he wasn't talking about, in fact, uh, Matthew words it uh, when Matthew gets Jesus in another discourse. How does he word it? Anybody remember? Unless you love him more than me. Okay. 
So it's like Jesus in his discourse, it's, it's presented two different ways. Unless you uh, hate, uh, unless you mother, father, son, or daughter, etc. And Matthew uh, words it another way. He said, unless you love me more than. And in that we see the actual meaning, as Jeff pointed out, of hatred there. It means that, uh, that you cannot be the disciple of Christ with anything else number one in your life. That when it comes to your, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, uh, your, uh, your mate, children, whoever it is, Christ is number one. And, and a person who has not reached a frame of mind where Christ is going to be number one in his life, they're not ready to become a Christian. Uh, I think one of the problems that we've got in the church is that we have been so concerned about converting and, and scared that we're going to drive people off that we definitely leave the impression that you can be a Christian with Christ something or the other number one. I mean, how many sermons let Jesus come into your heart or it's so simple, just, uh, uh, just believe and confess him, you know, and of course we slide by this word repentance and all. And then people come forward and, and they're baptized into Christ but it becomes obvious just very quickly many times that Christ is not number one in that life. Uh, I mean, it's obvious that uh, uh, I think that uh, I thought last night as I watched that thing on the, the Nazi uh, movement and some of the high officials, it's pretty obvious, wouldn't it, Mark, that uh, that philosophy was number one in their life, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. And I thought, here's a, here's a person that's not backward at all, getting on national TV and telling how much hatred he has for uh, certain groups and and, and the, that he thinks Adolf Hitler is a great person, obviously that's number one in his life. He wasn't the least bit backward and made it clear. He had no embarrassment whatsoever in, uh, in stating that kind of thing. All right, now, think with me on this. Try to think of people in the world uh, that, uh, that really accomplish impressive feats. Whether you're thinking about uh, an Olympic star somebody that makes the Olympic team, your top athletes, your top business people, your top doctors, your top anything. Can you think of any of those people that you've read about or anything but that for the period of time it took for them to reach whatever pinnacle in that area, that was number one in their life? I mean, do you, uh, do you get very high if you're a... Uh, do you make straight A's at school uh, in engineering unless th that's pretty high on your priority list? No. <laughs> you don't, do you? No. You don't just, in other words, you don't excel at anything unless it's high on your priority list. You just, you just don't. Uh, okay, now look at the statement again then. He says, what does that mean then? Is this a put down? Is, is God asking too much that he says that, uh, that he is number one, uh, that you cannot be his disciple unless he has precedence over mother, father, son, or daughter, and even your mate? Is that, is that haughty on God's part? Is that, is that too much? Uh, what is he really saying there? He knows you're capable of doing it. So if it's important to you to to live the Christian life, then you'll do it, no matter what. In other words, you're saying that obviously we have to have the 
the capacity to do this. Or he would never ask us to do it. Because he says you can't even be my disciple unless. All right, then, uh, do, your, uh, do your parents or your mate or your children come out on the short end of the stick if Christ is number one? Okay, that's the, that's the key that to a, for an infidel reads that and he makes it sound, he really does a job with that. But again, with our background and our knowledge of, of what Jesus, uh, we know that the same Lord, speaking through the apostles, uh, told a man to love his wife as his self, as his own body, as his, as his flesh. We know that one of the Ten Commandments was for children to honor their, their mother and their father. And we know that uh, parents are, are told to bring their children up in the nurture and admission of the Lord. And so suffice it to say, when, when God is number one, everybody benefits. Uh, but what if the parent is number one? Are you guaranteed to come out on top? Or, or the child, or whoever it is. That, uh, your, your, your parent is not always right, are they? And, and sometimes they can just be completely wrong. And obviously, they didn't any other acquaintance. And so that nobody really gets put down. It, it, the best thing that can happen to a woman is that she marries a man that Christ is number one in her life. And the best thing that can happen to a man is that he marries a woman that's, that Christ is number one uh, in their life because of the very nature of what he said. Okay, then, uh, what is involved in that then? Uh, how far can you take that? You cannot be my disciple unless he is number one over everybody. What does that involve? There was an, <clears throat> I met a guy in Cookville that went to a Willow Church of Christ, and um, he said that he was a, a preaching, got in the road, or became a problem with his marriage, that he would quit preaching to be a better husband because he felt he didn't have to be a preacher, but he had to be a husband. Okay, in other words, this guy's a full-time preacher? I don't know. No, he was a teacher. Okay. A preacher. But anyway, the comment was that uh, even though if he wanted to preach and his wife couldn't live with that idea, he would sacrifice for, that to have some the... reason, yeah. Okay. Uh, by the way, are, are you... Let's see, most of you guys, you guys are young, so I don't know, but Jack knows. Uh, Guy Woods, that ring a bell with anybody? Okay. Um, Guy Woods, he's still preaching. He's written a number of commentaries, preached meetings for years. Uh, used to, uh, he may still be, but it used to in years past be on the forum every year at the Fried Hardeman Lectureships. I know he and Gus Nichols used to do them together when Gus was alive. Uh, Guy Woods had a similar experience. He married and he went to school to become a lawyer and actually got his law degree. And after getting his law degree and he was married, he came to the conclusion that he wanted to preach full-time and that he was going to dedicate his life to the ministry. And his wife let him know that she didn't marry a preacher. She married a man who was going to be a lawyer. And so he had the choice that you're talking about there. Uh, he made the choice to preach full-time. He lived his life celibate, never married again. Never lived his life celibate. Uh, in fact, you, uh, you know, when I think of him, I think of the statement where Jesus said some would become eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, she was not guilty of adultery or anything like that. 
but he, he said he was going to preach full time for the Lord. And, and in other words, he was saying that uh, I'm going to do this and, uh, you know, you're my wife. And, and he wasn't abandoning anything of his responsibility, but he was simply saying um, that, that he looked at himself and he realized that he had the talent, the ability, uh, the intelligence, the desire, everything that was there. And he was going to do it. Um, Guy Woods lived celibate all his life and, and still is, but he put it number one. But he's a real good example, at least in my judgment. Now, some might differ on that of, of this passage right here. It, it, it was just literally number one in his life. Do you feel, I mean, you have the opinion that if, if this guy still chose not to preach because of that, that he's any less of a, a disciple? Or is it? No, I think uh, I wouldn't judge on, on that. Uh, in other words, that, uh, that there are so many other areas. I mean, for all I know, the man says that I'm going to, uh, you know, that they may have children. You know, see, God didn't have any children. Uh, they may have children. He, he may think that, well, I'll just I'll stay in one place and work and become an elder in the church or something like that. So, you know, I just wouldn't uh, uh, attempt. On one hand, I think Guy is an excellent example on that. On the other hand, I would, any judgment of heart, I think only God could do. I think uh, he's probably sincere in saying that and feeling like that he's he's um, doing what the Lord would want him to do in being a good husband. But I think I don't think he's thinking about the fact that he's the head of the household and that he should make no. decisions on that if she's a Christian. I think a, a good example, like what you're saying on the head of the household, uh, here's Abraham married to Sarah. Okay, and then God tells Abraham to get out away from his family and he had an idolatrous family and says get out and go out into a country that I'm going to show you and then I'm going to give you a land and descendants etc but by faith in God he was have to, going, to, going to have to head out into a land that where he'd never been before okay then the question becomes what if Sarah says Abraham I'm not going with you you know this is home uh, this is where my family is and I'm not going. Well, then the question is, what is the response that Abraham makes? I think that he, I think he goes. That when God says uh, like that, and as she, Barbara pointed out, uh, he is the, from the standpoint of God's talking with her, in other words, God's got to be number one in her life, uh, he's the head of the family, and he's made, you know, that decision. Uh, one thing maybe that is in, you see in somebody like uh, Guy Woods that, uh, at the time you marry, if you're fortunate enough to already be a Christian at that time, you ought to make it clear to your uh, prospective mate that Christ is number one in your life. And, and in other words, don't be willing to compromise there because this person is very attractive or, or has good qualities or a good job or whatever like that. But I think it ought to be made clear that, uh, you know, Christ is number one in my life. And that uh, if, uh, if I feel that I need to live here to promote Christianity, then I might live there just to promote Christianity, even if it's a lesser salary. Um, yeah. And in the case of Abraham, I was a God commanded to do that, a direct commandment for Abraham to do that. And uh, any time that, I'm of the opinion, any time God directly says something through the scripture, you just you don't don't compromise yeah. that. But if it's something where as um, being a preacher, yeah. not everybody called to be a preacher. Right. You know? But you've got a conscience, and you're told to respect your conscience. 
And so uh, what really happens, in fact, although the various denominations refer to themselves as being called, uh, you know, their preachers, they're actually sincere in that. I think what has happened, though, is it's their own, those of is their conscience. But still, what do you do if uh, you live in a world where you know the greatest need is the spread of Christianity? And, and you know about the parable of the talents. And so if you examine yourself and you say that God has given me this ability, and, and I feel compelled, and I have the background, and I have the ability, and my conscience demands it. Uh, I think that is God. I believe that when, when, when your mind has been filled with the Word of God, and then your conscience demands certain things of you, I think that's the way God speaks to us. I think that's a, a part of us that's made in the image of God, is the part that we call conscience, that sense of all. I think that we, all, we have the Great Commission to go and preach the Word, and that's to all Christians. And so I think if he was carrying that to the extreme that he wasn't going to, to talk much about Christianity or trying to convert his neighbor, then that would be wrong because he would put, be putting her before. But if he's making a decision, I'm not going to do it full time, I'm going to do all I can like any other Christian to lead others to the Lord, I think that's where maybe, you know, he could be either right or wrong in his decision. Yeah, I believe he was right. I think that uh, that he'd have to, you'd have the person would have to evaluate. We need full-time preachers who have good minds and who have the ability to articulate their thinking and all. And I just, uh, um, I think that we need more people who think that way in the church. That um, uh, you know, I just, I think that's part of it. You know, putting it number one. Uh, Look at the next statement there. Uh, right? He says, He cannot be my disciple. And then, if in anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me, again, cannot be my disciple. What's, what do you think is involved in that statement? Tied right in with the other one. Well, we know when <clears throat> Jesus carried his cross, it meant his death. And I was wondering if perhaps it could mean if we were willing to, to die for him or. The cross at that time was a means of crucifixion, was a means of uh, death. And there's a lot of shame involved, wasn't it? That uh, to carry the cross, the reason that Rome paraded people carrying the cross was to shame them, and they wanted everybody to see and all. Uh, obviously, there's the assumption there that there would be a, a cross to bear. Uh, and, and I think what Mark said that uh, that's what it when, when he made that statement everybody knew that that was probably the number one way that Rome executed criminals in that day was, was through the cross and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple and so he literally gave his all and went to his death for it now how do you reconcile those strong statements now with this, you're, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then you've got two very strong statements. You cannot be his disciple unless he is number one over mother, father, son, daughter, etc. And unless you're willing to carry your cross and follow him. How do, how do you reconcile that? I think that's going to be a result of your, your faith. I mean, if, you, if you've been convinced and you believe, then you're going to not have any problem doing what he says. I mean, it's just going to be a natural consequence or result from, from your belief. You're just going to do those things that he says because he 
Because he says them. Okay. So you're saying that faith is something that is in degree. We have degrees of faith. And so then the question becomes, what degree of faith, since it's something that will constantly grow and grow, what degree of faith does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? And unless that faith has reached a point where you're willing to put him number one and even go to your death, if it's demanded or whatnot, then that faith is insufficient. Paul said it was actually, it was actually God's grace that motivated him to do more than the others. Right. Um, because he knew, you know, he, he knew. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Right. That, uh, that uh, maybe that, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of emphasis today within the church on the fact that we're saved by grace through faith, and that's good, you know, that definitely that's been a, a progression away from uh, a more legalistic type thing. But I feel that anybody that thinks that salvation by grace through faith and not of works in some, in some way offers an easy way for people to be saved who are worldly and, and, uh, and, and really don't have Christianity as number one, I believe, as Mark mentioned, they really misunderstand faith, that uh, you don't earn anything, but uh, faith in the saving sense involves not just intellectual belief, it involves reliance and confidence and trust in, and unless one has reached the point where they put their complete trust in him and reliance and confidence to the point that this would follow, uh, then it wouldn't be sufficient. Uh, that in fact, James kind of draws a contrast between uh, two different types of faith, doesn't he? You, you believe that God is one, you do well, but demons also believe and tremble. I think the best example for showing that is um, Abraham. It says, when was he saved? Before circumcision or after he was circumcised? Right. And the answer was before. Right. Because God knew his heart, right. and when he decided to put his trust in the Lord, then we don't know that by looking, or other people around Abraham didn't know that, but Jesus knew that. God knew that. God knew that Abraham, so he was, the, the scriptures answer that. He says he was saved before right. circumcision. And so when he decided, it, it wasn't these good deeds that he did out here or that saved him, but it was when he put his trust in the Lord, and all those good deeds just followed. Right, if he, right. All right, he makes it clear in Romans 4, that Abraham was justified before he did a single solitary physical thing, even before he was circumcised. But then let's go back. In, in, in Genesis 15, it says Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteousness. And that's what Paul alludes to. But then we get all the way to the 17th chapter of Genesis before Abraham is commanded to be circumcised. What if Abraham had refused that command? Or would you have a contradiction to say on the one hand he believed, on the other hand he refused the, the command? Would it be a contradiction? It could be a contradiction. In other words, it, then, then what Paul goes on to say is that when he was circumcised, what you really saw was what God knew was in his heart in the first place. And that we see in the circumcision expression of it. All right, then we come all the way to Genesis 22, and Abraham offers up Isaac, and James uses that that his faith was made complete. Well, again, he had that faith or he would have never done it. So you and I look at the act and see the expression of trust. God knew what was in the heart over here. But again, the, uh, so far as bringing this all together, this kind of discipleship demanded in the fact that you're saved by grace through faith, a proper understanding of faith 
is that it involves reliance and trust and confidence. And if it is there, it will express itself in whatever way, whatever God asks it to. If it is not expressed, then it's simply not there. And so it's not a matter of earning anything by any doing. But the point is, if it is there, then it will be expressed uh, in this way. And, and what we always see is the expression uh, of the faith that is, that is in really in the heart. Okay, so then no conflict. He cannot be my disciple. And then uh, uh, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now look at the next parts of that. Suppose you want to build a tower. He draws a contrast. Uh, who in the world is going to build a house or a tower or anything like that without sitting down and estimating what it's going to cost you? So notice what he's saying to that large crowd there. He's really saying, do you really want to be my disciple? Sit down and, and count the cost. And, if, and if, it, if you don't want to put me number one, then don't be a disciple. At least that's the way I, I understand it. Uh, reversing the process, looking at it in the negative. If you, uh, if you count the cost, if you don't want to pay this kind of price, then simply don't, don't be my disciple. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one? Uh, and again, he points out that, that most warriors sit down and count the cost and, and they don't fight unless they think they've got a chance of winning. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. Okay, what's he saying there? In the same way, he's already said he has to come first before mother. Somebody want to tackle that? Well, I have a question about what you were talking about about Abraham. It's something I've thought about, but I mean, he—I don't know if God would have asked him to sacrifice his son when he was first making contact with Abraham, because I'm not sure if Abraham would have had the faith to do it. I mean, I don't know if that's a good observation or not, but like when he finally when he said it was credited to him for righteousness, he had no problem to. You know, later on, to, when he said be circumcised, to go ahead and do that to him and, and his children and everything like that. Yeah. But, you know, I, I guess, you know, Jesus is making these statements, but, I mean, well, what it, sounds like, it sounds like the perfect faith or something here. Like, you know, if, you know, like when Abraham first he said he believed God and all, could God have asked him, go ahead and sacrifice your son, right? You know, like that? Or, okay, what did Abraham, when the Hebrew writer hits on it, what did he give Abraham as Abraham's reason for going ahead and being willing to offer up Isaac? He believed God could raise him from the okay. dead. Okay. To me, that was his faith. His faith in God was so strong, he knew that God had made a promise that all this seed was going to be blessed through Isaac. See, he knew he'd made that promise. And so his faith in God was so strong that when God said to offer him up, Abraham tried to reconcile that. He said, how can this be reconciled? You know, he's got to fulfill this promise through Isaac, and he's told me to kill him. Well, he said the, the only thing he, he can possibly do is raise him from the dead. So you're and, saying and then he was willing to do it. At the point, if, if he would have, you know, if he would have became a you know, believer and all, he just had a son, and God told him, go ahead and sacrifice that son, he would have done it, you know, right then. I'm he saying, I believe, that, years, I believe at the point of Genesis 15, where he says Abraham believed God and was counted to righteous, I believe Abraham had put his trust in God. That, and it... He had already got up and, remember the first command he was given, he got up and walked out into a foreign land that he didn't know. In other words, 
before he reached this point of trust, John, I see what you're hitting at is growing a faith, mm -hmm. but I'm saying that, that Abraham had reached the point where he trusted God before it was counted to him as righteousness. That he had, that he, he, where he started at, we know he comes from an idolatrous background. And then he reaches this point where he puts his trust in God. Well, then James speaks of this event over here as his, as in other words, it's, the, it's what you would expect because of what he had at his heart. His, his faith was made perfect. It was completed, mature. That, uh, and, and the same with the circumcision that uh, Paul said it was just the outward sign of, of what he actually had in his heart in the first place. But I guess what I'm saying is, did that happen? That didn't just happen when he, I mean, I guess I'm just having trouble with that. When, when, he, when he believed and all, he wasn't a mature necessarily believer then, was he? Or I mean, did he take some time for him to get to that point where well, he could sacrifice Isaac? Or you see what's like, okay. like, Jesus is saying this. Is he saying that, you know, do you have to, because I don't know if I'll ever get to that point where it's, t I mean, I don't know. It's just, that is, you know, that is. Well, I'm hard. saying at that, I think that is the point where Abraham was justified. He had to go for a while to get to that point. And then at that point, and then the rest of it was expression of that. Okay, look at the, uh, the uh, first century church that uh, we've got these people converted on Pentecost. And right away, they have to have the faith where they're willing to be persecuted and go to their death. And they're scattered and they preach the word everywhere they go. And uh, the, the apostles, uh, just like Paul is a good example, from the very first of his conversion, uh, it, was, it was whatever God wanted, uh, what, was, uh, what, what he was going to do. I'm saying that maybe we try to get people uh, baptized into Christ before their faith is sufficient. That maybe when people still have doubts in their mind, or maybe when they haven't really made the decision to turn loose of the world, that, that we're so concerned about salvation and maybe so turned into that right, that turned onto that right, that we're trying to do it and so we wind up with uh, a number of people with a, with a not sufficient faith that are calling themselves Christian. Okay. I guess that's, that's where I'm confused is the, the difference between putting your trust in and willing to do all this stuff and then the difference between that and how your faith grows. I mean, how, how, you know what I'm saying? Like, it definitely grows, but yet you all the time would have been willing to do whatever yeah. God said. Yeah. I believe that it... It grows, definitely grows, but I mean, I think from the very first, you've made that decision to put your trust in Christ and that's salvation. And I believe that where it continues to grow from that point on is like Paul reaches the end of his life and he says, I know whom I believe it and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've entrusted to him. And you reach the point where you have acted on your trust and then the end result is you've said, now I know. Uh, when, you apparent, uh, when you become a parent, you will take the command in faith to bring your children up in the nurture and admiration of the Lord. And you wouldn't do it if you didn't believe it. I mean, you'd have to believe it and trust in it to make you do it. But then, in the doing of it, you then do it. And then when you look at the end product in comparison with others that didn't do it out there, and then you say, I'm, I know that's right. You know, it, it, I've done it, and it, and it worked. Uh, in John 7, 17, Jesus said, If anybody willeth to do my will, 
he shall know of the teaching, whether I speak of myself or of God. And so I think that all your life as you in faith act on the teaching of God and then you reap the reward from it, then your confidence just constantly grows and, and grows all the time. But I think from the very first that uh, in order to become a Christian, you have to be persuaded beyond any doubt in your mind of that Jesus was raised from the dead, <clears throat> that that's a historical fact and that you can have salvation uh, any based on your trust, any. And, and these people here that look at our context again in Luke 14, these are not mature Christians. Uh, they are people that he's saying to right then, if you want to be my disciple, this will have to be the case. But then, is he asking too much? What have they witnessed before he uh, makes a statement like that? I've witnessed a lot of miracles, haven't they? In other words, uh, remember the, uh, the children of Israel when they went into the land of Canaan and Joshua and Caleb had enough faith to believe they could take it and Moses condemned that entire adult generation and said you will not go in but only your children that did not know right from wrong and he rebuked them strongly and over that 40 years of wandering every one of them died in the wilderness but the the reason uh, Joshua and Caleb were responding to the miracles they had already seen and the power of God the others after seeing all of that still refused to put their trust in God well, to show how powerful that evidence was, when they go into the land, you've got Rahab the harlot, who just based on her awareness and the information she had, had made the decision that the God of Israel had to be the true God, and she acted on faith and put her life on the line. And so it was, uh, but the point is that, that they reached that point where they had seen so much. I mean, God was just patient with them, and he did one miracle after another. And then they crossed the Red Sea, and he destroyed the Egyptian army. And now, from God's standpoint, they have reached the point where they ought to have enough faith to go ahead and obey. And when they didn't, he rejected them and destroyed that entire adult generation. And he said Joshua and Caleb, because of their faith, would go in and their children that would be brought up in that realm. I think that we ought to concentrate more of our teaching with people that are not Christians on the kind of information... Uh, that produces faith, such as evidences, uh, we practice a lot of what the philosopher would, for would call fideism, where we just simply tell people you have to have faith. And, and, we put, and I think with that kind of thing, there has to always, I don't even believe that a fideist can operate without doubt in his mind, that I don't know how that your, your mind will really and truly believe something without reservation. Unless it's unless you have the, a certain body of evidence behind it. I often wonder how how much we cheat ourselves by not fully believing and trusting in the Lord. I was thinking when we were when we were talking about Abraham, I was thinking Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and they said, "Our God is. We know that our God is able. He He may not, but we know that He's able." And then I was thinking of Ephesians where Paul. Writing to Christians, he said that God's able to do more than we can even imagine. When he's talking about prayer, he says that the Lord is able to do even more than we can imagine. And I don't think that. I'm like Mark. I'm a little bit. I'm not, I, I, I see this, but um, you know, 
still seems like it's a, it's a growing process. Being faith is based on information and evidence. If I had all the information and evidence, I would no, no, no longer need to be No, no, no. I'm not saying it's not a growing process. faith is going to be process. growing, and I may make decisions that require more faith. Okay, no, I'm not saying... from now than I do now. I'm not saying it's not a growing process, and I'm not saying that 10 years from now you don't have more faith. You know, that was what we said. But I'm saying that right here, Jesus is speaking to people that are contemplating discipleship. And he makes a plain statement. And, and he says that if you have not reached the point that you're willing to put me number one over everything else and pick up your cross and follow me, then you've not reached the point where you have faith enough to be my disciple. That, in other words, it's a, up to that, it's a growing. See, these people here didn't just walk into Jesus on this one day. They've already heard, listened to him teach. Uh, they've looked at his life. And they have witnessed miracles. And, uh, and, and, and they apparently, in his judgment, have enough information right there. And, and he expects uh, something of them. And so they have already are, have expected to grow to this point. Now, I believe they can grow more. In other words, even after you, you say, I'm going to put Christ number one, that uh, you still can be an immature person who has a whole lot of things to learn and, and what's involved in being. In other words, your idea at 40 of what it is for Christ to be number one may be completely different than it is at 25 uh, with him being number one. And you, you can mature to spiritually. The concept from the outset. That but right. the mindset but, that you, you want to, but due to the weakness of flesh, you won't always right. do it. Right. But your mind should want to do it. And, yeah. and you love the Lord and, and, and you have the intent to do it. Yeah. But due to the weakness of flesh, you won't always do it. And that's where the blood of Jesus well, but you can still, right, you can still have that, that he's number one. I'm saying we can be imperfect. I mean, forget about being a Christian. You can have somebody that's number one in life, even though you're still imperfect. They can be number one among all the other things that you compare them to, even though you're imperfect. Uh, a man's, uh, or a woman's mate, or your child. I mean, uh, you've seen parents that number one in their life was their child, but that didn't mean they was perfect parents. And, and you've seen uh, mates that number one in their life was their mate, but that didn't mean they were a perfect mate. In the same way, Christ can be number one in your life without you being perfect, just like you're not perfect in anything else. But he can still be number one in contrast to everything else uh, that you deal with. All right, now to think of it again to show you, I think that it can be, from your experiences you've already had uh, in life, how many times in a congregation have you witnessed a young person with a background that was something other than Christian, be converted, and Christ was obviously number one in their life. They began to make sacrifices. They get involved. They study the Bible. Uh, uh, they maybe make mistakes due to ignorance and weakness of the flesh, but it's obvious that Christ is number one in their life, and they're ready to go into a mission field. They're ready to make sacrifices. On the other hand, you've seen people that they're 45 or 50 years of age, uh, they've been in the church 30 years, and it's, and it's obvious that they're, they're still spending more time watching basketball and football and, 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 and whatever else, and uh, fun stuff and all, than they are in studying the Bible and, and teaching others or making any kind of sacrifice. Uh, I've known young people that were converted in their teens and immediately made the decision to give a minimum of 10% of their income to the Lord, and as, as a minimum, I mean upon unconversion that I've known that. And then I've known people that got to be 40 and never had progressed over 2 or 3% of their income. 
So I'm saying that it, it obviously was a decision that they, they made. But uh, uh, I know that uh, in the situation that uh, Brian's, I look at uh, those of you that right here, uh, Brian's a young, young man. I'm just, I could use any number of you. I'll use Brian. Brian's a young man. Uh, does not come from a strong Christian background, right, Brian? Uh, he, was, he was right. Not right. right. But I mean that, uh, that you, you made the decision, just like others have made, you made a decision that you wanted to preach full-time as a young person. Uh, and uh, you, all of you have met others who had no, uh, where's Stone? Background? No, Stone was uh, his true background. Uh, most of you are background. Uh, all right, then I'll use, I guess, that I've known a number. In fact, uh, the... Uh, uh, Dad, for instance, that, no, I'm Christian, there you go. No, I'm saying that I've known, uh, look at, okay, uh, John Clayton, I'll get it, I mean, he had two parents who were atheists, <laughs> two parents who were atheists, and he makes the decision to become a Christian. Now, he's imperfect, and tell you himself, he's imperfect, but I'm saying from the very first, Christ has been number one in his life. And he's got, right now, he's got this fantastic program where he's doing good all over. He sacrifices every single solitary weekend. And yet you've got people that have been brought up in the church, taught the Bible from youth, who, who've never reached the point in life where they've even made a fraction of that kind of sacrifice. What I'm saying is the fact that he has done it is evidence that you can do it uh, from the first. And that, uh, that I'm saying I've known any number to have made decisions that they're going to give a, a chunk of their income and that they're going to change their life and all, uh, even as, as young people. And so obviously you're capable of a, of a very high degree of trust, you know, as a, as a young person. And I think that you can't look at one person and say, oh, I think that's where the judgment comes in. You have to leave that between the Lord knows. Yeah. No. Well, but you can see the the fruits in the life. I'm saying I believe that it is possible at conversion for a person to have an attitude of where Christ is number one. We're not saying that he can't learn a lot more and he can't control, I mean, grow and everything like that. But I'm saying that you can have an attitude where even at conversion that you have made the decision that Christ is going to be number one in your life. And that that based on what he's saying here, look again at what he's saying here in verse 25. According to what he says there, can a person become a disciple of his who has not reached the point where he's going to be number one? I guess what the problem has been and anything that I've seen is, uh, I mean, like I, I became a Christian and I didn't have, I mean, I, I could look at my parents and, you know, look at the things around me and see that it was right to do certain things, you know, and, and I guess that was my evidence or whatever, because I never even studied anything like Christian no. evidence until I ever came here. You know, I was, right. it was just not a part of what I did. And I guess that's I was thinking about that while we, you were talking and all. And uh, that is is largely missing from from churches. I mean, I, I don't. There's only been one time ever that I've heard a sermon on the resurrection, or it was on Jesus' death, and it was he was just the preacher was describing the, the medical aspects of it, but. There's just not been a, I guess there's not been a lot of information placed on, or emphasis placed on the, the information that creates belief. Like you said, they were sitting around and they had seen his life and they had seen the miracles and they had seen just like the people in, in you know, coming out right. of Egypt. And uh, 
there's not a lot of that going on in any church of I, that I know and, of. And, but that's the motivating, look at, as Steve mentioned when he quoted, uh, paraphrased, 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said that it was his understanding of the grace of God that motivated him to even outdo all the other apostles. It was his understanding of the, of the grace of God. Uh, but I, I believe that if a person has, has come to the point where he's examined the evidence and believes that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus gave himself, I mean, can you be a Christian believing any less than Jesus died for you and that he was raised from the dead? I mean, that's the essence of Christianity, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, if, I mean, until you reach the point that you believe that, that God so loved you that he gave Jesus to die for you and that he raised him from the dead, then how is anybody ready to become a Christian until they, they understand that? Well, that so, that I mean, would be the know, essence. Just like you'll see any number of times. I mean, I don't know what it says about their belief or anything, but, you know, young, real young kids, you know, coming to... Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, how how do you, how does that work? I mean, you know what I'm saying? They obviously haven't lived a long life or anything. I mean, I guess you can make the decision when you're real young like that, but how do you, how do well, you? Well, I think maybe some of them do uh, too young. I'm not, uh, I don't, uh, uh, the, even in the, I know in the background in the church, when, when we make this statement, or sometimes parents do, that uh, I know he knows the truth, or I know he believes the truth. What do they mean by that statement? Uh, when I say I'm, uh, he's not a Christian, but he knows the truth or he believes the truth, uh, I think they, they mean that he knows the plan and he knows what the true church is and things like that. I, I think when he comes to the point where he believes that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for him and that he was raised from the dead, then is the point where he's ready to become a, a, a Christian. Uh, That's what he says in John 6 there in that. In that chapter there, he says right. in John 6, 29, Jesus answers them. They asked him in 28, there it says, Then they asked him, What must we do to the that they've got multitudes there that don't even believe in the deity of Jesus. And yet that's the essence uh, of Christianity. It, it revolves around that. That we, uh, I believe that our approach to teaching others ought to be just like Jesus is here. That the, the evidence ought to be presented. The reasoning ought to take place. They ought to get a good look at Christ. That we ought not to try and persuade people to walk down an aisle or be baptized or something when they obviously have not reached the point where they believe in their mind that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's been raised from the dead and, and, and that he actually gave himself, you know, as a sacrifice for their sin. And that we would find uh, more commitment among those that are converted. Uh, we would be a better witness and more of a light uh, in the world if, if, if that was the case. That uh, maybe we have too little contrast between the church and the world because we don't have, you know, a sufficient uh, with that kind of faith. Back to Mark's uh, comment that he, you know, had he had not come in contact with evidences as such that Christian evidences, right. like we often talk about. But I think that all of us 
have evidences. We just don't call them that. And, and I think, the, to me, the greatest evidence has always been that it works. Well, you that's know, one yeah. piece of evidence for we the law. But, yeah. but I mean, that doesn't prove the resurrection well, no. of Jesus. Is what I'm saying, it, right? It's it's part of it. Yeah. That, I think you can look and, and prove you, that there's a God by looking at what's around. Right. Him, but that doesn't prove that there was a man named Jesus who rose right. from the dead. Right. Yeah. That uh, right. I, I agree that uh, looking at the life of Christ and having inner identification with that and seeing that it's right, that it works, that is an evidence, just as the evidence is for God and all. But uh, that doesn't prove the resurrection. That uh, the, uh, when Paul makes a statement in Romans 10 that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved, and he says, how shall we call on him in whom we don't believe, and how shall we believe in except a preacher be sent? And then he goes on and makes the observation about the, the good news, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That message that Paul proclaimed was Jesus, the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament, Jesus that myself and all the other apostles and all have witnessed and, and all the evidences that surrounded that that was the proof of his, his, his resurrection from the grave. So what does it mean to put, put Jesus first exactly? What I mean. Okay, what, what, what I'm what, saying... You're working uh, a 40 hour week job and, and what does it mean to put Jesus first? Okay, you sleep uh, and you sleep eight hours every night, and then, <laughs> then you eat, and then, then what does it mean? Okay, what does it mean? I mean, did Jesus have to sleep at night? Yeah. But God was number one in his life. Uh, I, I mean, Jesus, uh, before thirty years of age, he was a carpenter, and so he had to earn a living. Uh, they, uh, most of the early Christians were not full-time preachers, right? They had to earn their living uh, and work. So obviously, you can earn a living and you can sleep. And you can have children, you can have a wife, and still Christ is, is number one in your life. But number one in life, in other words, he, number one, he gears uh, or controls all those various relationships. If you're on the job and you're honest and you're Christ-like and you're, and you're a person of integrity, uh, Daniel was in the household of Nebuchadnezzar. But it was obvious to everybody around him that God was number one in his life. And so I'm saying that when you're on the job, it can be obvious to others that God is number one in your life. Uh, that from the way you conduct yourself, your vocabulary, uh, your, your interest in life, I mean, uh, in your conversation, I mean, is, is the only thing you can talk about is volunteer football or, or shooting deers or Kentucky basketball or whatever it is you're into, or, or is the conversation... Uh, concerned about salvation in Christ, and uh, and 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 things of uh, that revolve around the Bible and things like that. So I'm saying it becomes if uh, uh, if you meet somebody on the job, and you get to know them, if God is number one in their life, you become aware of this, right? Okay. Then you're uh, you've you've got a if you're uh, if you're if you're you're married, and God is number one in your life, then obviously you're not running around. Uh, you are treating her in a certain way. Uh, she is treating you in a certain way. If you're bringing up your children and God is number one in your life, then you're bringing them up in a certain way. So I'm saying that, that uh, in every phase of life that you deal with, that you get an opportunity to show whether God is number one in your life. All right, and then you go to church, uh, and it comes time to contribute. And uh, you know how much that you pay for cable TV, 
you know, how much you pay for gadgets on cars and how much you pay for the various luxuries in life. And so if, if what you give to God is less than what you're spending on the luxuries of life, I mean, is he number one uh, in that? And then when churches make decisions on how to spend money, are we going to spend all the money on ourselves in a fantastic building uh, or, and, uh, and having fun and entertainment? Are we going to use our money to, to spread the gospel and, uh, and to do benevolence and things like that? And I think when we do that, we get an opportunity to show whether God is number one in our life. And I think that um, like when we started this study about mentioning on the thing that's going on in Germany and in our own country and other parts concerning things in the world that are going to lead to war and crime and all kinds of problems, the question is, what would really happen in the world if people who profess Christianity really and truly had Christ as number one in their life? I mean, right now, would, uh, how many missionaries would we have in Russia right now if Christ was really number one in the, the lives of the, of, of the Christians in this country? Uh, how many full-time uh, uh, people would we have uh, from a standpoint of, and by the way, when, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the shortage of full-time uh, people, we have young people that are willing to do it, and sometimes we persuade them that's the right thing, and then after they make the decision to do it, they've got to go out and beg for support, and they find out it's not there. And there's been more than one that have gone out and, and then uh, left it uh, simply because they made the decision they wasn't going out and begging for support when congregations had their money all tied up in buildings and, and things of that nature. Uh, instead of putting it into the evangelism itself. I think there's an example of what you're talking about. In Luke in chapter 18, where it talks about the rich ruler coming to Jesus, and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't mix words. He gets right to the, to the heart of what, you know, what's close to that man. Huh. And when the man can't make a decision that he's going to turn loose of that, then, you know, that's, he finds out real quick that he's not, Jesus is not number one in his life. And I think that's really what it boils down to. Actually, go back to the rich ruler. He would look pretty good in our church today, wouldn't he? I mean, he's very moral, uh, very moral individual. He believed in God, religious, wanted to go to heaven. And, um, but he wasn't willing to, to really put him number one uh, above, every, above everything else. Uh, okay. The point of the whole discussion, I've thought a lot about, you know, we discuss various subjects and we're, you know, we're always learning and studying and, you know, we want to continue to do that because you can't serve God without information. But we really need more people that are putting God number one in their life. And if we're going to make an impact on the world, that uh, Christianity made its big impact in the first century because he was number one in, in the lives of a, of a number of people. The... If you go back and study what we refer to as a restoration movement, uh, it would have never got off the ground had it, had it not been number one in the thinking of people and they were willing to sacrifice for it. Uh, anytime there's ever been any kind of a religious movement in, uh, all through the centuries that's successful, uh, Martin Luther, uh, obviously, whatever you may agree or differ, differ with Martin Luther on some doctrine, obviously Christ was number one in his life. Uh, that he was willing to be ostracized uh, to lose his life or whatever it took 
in order to stand up uh, against the Catholic Church and lead the rebellion at that time against a whole lot of things that were, were wrong. Uh, what does it mean to you if you're, you're a member of a congregation? What does it mean to you in that church for Christ to be number one in your life? What was the, uh, in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, everybody familiar with the story of the guy that was uh, uh, living in a, an adulterous situation? And Paul condemned the church because they were haughty and proud and, and they had not broke fellowship with that. Everybody familiar with that in, in first? In other words, I'm saying that if, if you're in a church and, and there is immorality or anything that is wrong like that going on, is Christ number one in your life if you're willing to look the other way in order to have peace and, and not to have an argument or, or, or anything like that? Is he are? If you're in a church and you can see that the, the leaders of the church are constantly spending the money uh, on things that, it, that involve just material things and, uh, and, the, and services and all for that particular congregation, and that uh, a very small percentage of that money is, is actually getting into uh, the preaching of the gospel itself, what do you do if you're, you're in a situation and Christ is really number one in your life. Uh, I believe you have to speak up. Uh, even if somebody does get offended, uh, that uh, I think uh, the, that we need more of us in congregations that are willing to speak up and, and make it clear that we want the money spent in evangelism, uh, that we want to reach out to people, that we want to put less money in bricks and mortar and, and more money into uh, converting people. Uh, we could probably house everything we've got plus with half the money we've spent on buildings uh, down through the years. Uh, we wouldn't give up anything in the way of just square footage and whatnot uh, if, by just taking away some of the luxury and putting that uh, into sporting men to, to preach the gospel full time. Turn over here to 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. We'll look at this as the last <coughs> part. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, beginning with verse 8. Uh, Steve, would you start there, please? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really have become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are, rag we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. 
Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. How far do you Go ahead, down through verse uh, 16. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in God, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Okay. Now, skip on down. And uh, remember, there's no chapters or verses or anything like that. We put all that. Then he continues on. He said, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? Okay, now, looking at that whole context, what is Paul saying there to the church at Corinth? He, he talks about himself and the apostles, and he talks about them, and he, he deals with their... Uh, in fact, as he continues on in the letter, he deals with their worship service, etc. Uh, what is the difference in their, uh, their practice of Christianity and Paul's, and then he's pleading with them to imitate him. What is the difference in their practice? And put Christ first. Okay. They, they were still trying to satisfy themselves. Okay. Were, was anybody, does it sound like there's very many people there sacrificing at Corinth? Uh, he said, you've arrived. You know, you're kings. You're wealthy. You've got all this. Everybody thinks you're great people. But the interesting thing is that, uh, that this is what Christianity is doing for me. He says that I'm such and such and such. You know, people don't think I'm great. And in other words, he seems to be saying that if you were proclaiming the same Christ that I am, why aren't you in the situation that we're in? That uh, you people have arrived, and you've got all of this, but yet this is what's happening to us. And then he says, imitate me. Then he goes on and says, it's actually, and he really tells us something about him. It's actually reported that this kind of sexual immorality exists, and you're proud, you're puffed up. In other words, the, the church there was, they wanted to go to heaven when they died, I, I guess. That's why they they'd embraced uh, Christianity. They were persuaded of the uh, resurrection. Paul, Paul had started the church there. But Christianity was, was not something that they were suffering for, that they were sacrificing for, uh, that they were going to... Uh, that they were willing to stand up for, that they were willing to uh, even bust up a friendship for, or anything of that nature. It was just something they were casually going through the motions and, and going to church. And Paul comes on very strong there. And uh, again, lets them know that here they are, even though they're from a pagan environment, that they should reach a point of discipleship where they were willing to do exactly what he's speaking of there. Well, then now contrast that with today. In America, while we are spending our time uh, with entertainment, uh, sports, uh, materialism, and we're going through all these various things that uh, we have uh, in in Russia and places like that, you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people who want a Bible and don't have it because we're not sending us we we're not sending a sufficient we're sending all all the money we give we're buying Bibles and sending or but I'm saying that there is more people wanting Bibles over there than we can get to them. Uh, in the uh, one of the interesting things I found out when I went to Jubilee and looked at the are any of you familiar with the World Bible School? 
anybody familiar with World Bible School that uh, some of your, you may come from congregations that's had a part in this. But anyway, the World Bible School uh, uh, sends out these uh, correspondence courses. And in Africa and some of these third world countries, there are more people willing to take the correspondence course and actually fill in all the lessons and send them in to get graded than we have people willing to take the time to grade it and mail them the next course. We could have thousands more taking those courses, but there, we can't find enough people in the church that are, and you don't have to be a, a teacher like these people that say they, you know, they can't teach, I don't have a talent for teaching or whatever it is, but I'm saying that all they have to do is be willing to spend the money, to, it costs a dollar to mail that lesson out, and they mail it back, and you grade it, make whatever comments you want on it, and send it back, and you go through the lessons. And uh, they have people that are going through those lessons over there, and once they go through it, they go looking for somebody to baptize them. I mean, that's how it's moving in, in Africa. Uh, that they, they go through it, they, they get Bibles, they study, and they go looking for somebody to baptize them. And we can't even come up with enough people to grade the lessons and be willing to put out the dollars that are necessary to to send them the, the material. And we've got parts of the country right now that, uh, that I mean, the people are there willing to listen. And, and we don't have enough full-time people that we can uh, put there. Uh, or we have churches in areas where the, you know, the gospel is, is very weak and we can't, we, there's not enough effort being put forth to, to reach people that are willing to hear. Uh, suffice it to say, discipleship, I don't believe, is really being taught a whole lot. That uh, we've got nice buildings, we've got big debts on these buildings, we don't want to run anybody off, and that in the final analysis, that we're creating a country club type atmospheres. And I don't believe that is representative of Christianity. And when we talk about restoring New Testament Christianity, what we generally mean is, is, is restoring what we believe is a correct organization and a correct plan. But this is how the church was spread. And I think that uh, those of us, we're just a small group here tonight, but each of you are intelligent, you're getting a good education, and there is no limit to the amount of influence that you can have if you make the decision that Christ is going to be number one in your life and that you're going to become very active in whatever church or congregation you're involved in and that you're going to study so that you can teach classes, uh, that you're going to keep your eye on what's happening and you're going to be a voice for spending uh, money and in, in, in supporting missionaries and things like that. And you can have a tremendous impact. I mean, how many do we have here tonight that are, that are going to be, what do we have, four or five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, ten, eleven, twelve, uh, thirteen, minimum of about thirteen different families that are represented, that, uh, and it was twelve apostles. And, and just like you're sitting in on a study, and if you continue to study, and then you conduct studies just like uh, uh, Mark, and uh, Mark here, they started studies up there where they're at around Kingston. If you have the idea that you're going to develop your information basis so that you're going you're to do studies yourself and influence more people, I'm telling you, there's no limit to what we can do if, if we're willing to be 100% committed and I think that's what Christianity was all about. And that in the final analysis, you, you, don't, you don't give up anything. I mean, that's the sad thing, that uh, what you gain is so much more than what you give up that there's no comparison. Turn over to Philippians. 
I said the other would be the last, didn't I? Turn over to Philippians, if I can find the right place here. The third chapter. We'll read the third and passage here in the third and first and then end, end the discussion. Uh, let's see. Uh, Brian, would you read that in verses uh, 7 through 11, please? Yet whatever gains I have, these I come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the, of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, notice the thing there. He, he says he gave up everything in order to have Christ, but yet he counted it so much rubbish in contrast to what he actually has. And I'm saying that uh, to do what we're talking about, that we might watch a few less ball games, go to a few less movies, do a little less hunting, uh, do, a, uh, do a little less of some of the other things in the world, spend a little less on, on material things, but in contrast to what you've got on that, it's rubbish that if you, if you not only come to know Christ in that way, but if you can reach the point where you wrap up your life, however many years you've got, and can honestly look back on your life and, and say, look at how many people that you've had a part in, in leading to Christ, or how many missionaries that you've had a part in supporting and all. I don't believe there's anything you can gain from any of the other uh, that even compares uh, with the kind of feeling that you can have. And by the way, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it's sinful to hunt or sinful to see a movie or sinful to play ball or anything like that. I'm talking about from the standpoint of what's number one uh, and, and where the emphasis uh, ought to be all the, way, all the way through life. Paul did what he did simply because Christ was number one in his life. Uh, he, out, he outdid them all. He was a sickly man of small stature, and not a great public speaker. Uh, I mean, he was obviously blessed with a great mind and a great education. And, and then there was the sacrifice that was there on his part. All right, then in, back up to the first chapter, his attitude again in Philippians 1, 21. Uh, Mark, would you read that please? Verse 21 through 23. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Okay, so for me, he reaches a point, he says, for me to live is Christ, uh, to die is gain. And he said, to be honest with you, I'd rather go ahead and be with the Lord, but the reason I'm staying on, or I'm persuaded that he knew that God had more for him to do. Uh, the ultimate in Christianity, according to Paul, was to reach the point where you could say that it's no longer I that liveth, but Christ liveth in me. That ought to 